So we are uh, wrapping up today our series, uh, I Can Quit Whenever I Want. And I don't know how this series has impacted you. Uh, I've heard just quietness throughout the month. And so I don't know if that's like a good quiet or a bad quiet or it really doesn't matter to me kind of quiet. But I hope that you understood that this series is not about really, it's not just focusing on the hardcore addictions like drug and alcohol and things like that. But that there are underlining, there are other addictions, right, uh, compulsions that we each have that we don't want to share with anybody. But people have noticed. If you live in your job or family members have taken light and they see that you're a different person because of these addictions. And so my heart really behind this is it's not that you leave here and be like, oh, it was only Pastor E had issues. But the truth is that there's things that we do that's going on in our world and kind of impacted the way or the person we are and how we interact with the people around us. And so then, again, this is a series about the excuses, right? Each week we've addressed an, excuses, an excuse, but the excuses that we use to avoid dealing with our everyday addictions. And so tonight or today, our last excuse for our addictions is it hasn't been an issue for a while. I'm think, I, I think I'm over it. It hasn't been an issue for a while. I think I'm over it. So let me ask you this. Ever had a habit, right, uh, that you knew? You knew it was absolutely unhealthy. And so you began to put things in play to kind of kind of steer away from that habit. And, and then all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but you started to realize that, man, I, I'm doing this. This is no longer having a part of me. I can control this, right? I, 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 for a good portion of time, you had it under control. But eventually, it came back up, Right? And the old pattern that you have sworn off that you would never do again, you find yourself doing it again. Like, I'm not going to eat ice cream before bed anymore. Anymore. I really, I'm not. Or, or man, I'm never going to binge watch Netflix again till like 2.30 in the morning. Because it makes me unproductive the next day. I'm groggy. People are talking to me. And, I, and all I keep thinking about is the show that I was watching. It makes you absolutely unproductive. And you say, no, I'm never going to do that again. And you get, it, you get it under control when then something happens. And, right? We all have something like that because truth is, Breaking habits is hard. Breaking habits are hard. And the, and the thing is that some habits are higher stakes than others. They do more damage. They have a bigger destructive ripple effect in our lives. I'm, not, I'm going to stop overspending. I'm not going to use my credit card. Again, I'm going to stop charging things, right? I'm not going to buy anything online. I'm not going to allow myself to get angry anymore when, when I'm trying to, trying to give my ideas at work and them not being accepted. I'm not going to get angry no more. Friends, whatever it is, 
we've all hit these pain points that have caused us to swear things off. I'm never going to do that again. It's never going to happen. I promise you. And maybe, truth is, maybe you, you confessed it and you took action and got some accountability and you experienced some level of freedom as a result and you felt like, man, I have grown. It felt good and you were a better person because of it. And you, honestly, you liked the new you. You looked in the mirror like, yeah, I like the new me, right? And it benefited the, the people around you, your family, your coworkers. And you told yourself, man, I ain't never going back. I am never going back. This is the new me. Pop the collar and everything. And back in the day, you used to pop the collar. Be like, yeah, I look good, right? You pop the collar, right? And it meant, you meant it. You absolutely meant it. I mean, you did for a while until you didn't anymore. And you kind of relapsed. Friends, the reality of it is that most people in recovery relapse at some point. And what's wild is the point at which people are most likely to go back to a bad habit that they've broken free from is when they've become convinced that they never will go back. That moment where you feel like, man, I'm on top of the world. Ain't nobody can stop me anymore. I got life. Life is here. I am standing on top of it. I'm never going back. The apostle Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. If you think that you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. Be careful not to fall. And the reason is because their overconfidence, their overconfidence convinces them to let go, to do away with the things that help them get free. But once all of that structure, once all of that structure is gone, there is nothing supporting the ability to maintain free, to stay free. Church, when you stop doing what you did to get free, it's unlikely that you'll stay free. And that's frustrating. I get it. That's frustrating because we just want to conquer things and be done with it. And with some things we can, right? With some things we can, but with others, we just can't. And no one is more upset about a relapse than the person relapsing. No one's more upset. Part of us thinks that if we were more spiritual, right, if we were just more spiritual, we would have our life together. If, we were, if God just loved us more, we would have it under control. If God cared for me, or even if there was, if even if there was a God, we wouldn't have to deal with this anymore. Ever yell, ever yell at God for not fixing you once and for all? Fixing the things that that that, that you're struggling with? Because the writers. Almost, almost every New Testament writer did. 2 Corinthians 12, 7b, Paul says to God, 
even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God. So to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Church, we don't, we don't know what, what Paul's thing was. Could have been a, 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 a numerous things. We don't know what Paul's thing was, just like I don't know what your thing is. But he describes it as a thorn, right? I like to think of it as a splinter. Ever had one of those little tiny little splinters get underneath your nail? Right? It's, it, is, it is painful. It is annoying. Sometimes I, you just want to get, like, it just bothers you. Everything that you do with your hands, it upsets you. It annoys you, right? Something so small yet so painful. And the thing is that you can go through life with it, right? With it being there, but it makes so much, it, it makes so much of what you're doing so unenjoyable. It steals your focus. You're trying to work around it. You become angry at it. That area is not getting better because what's making it is bad is still in there, still lodged in there. And that's how Paul felt. Like it's a thorn in my side. I, no matter what I'm doing, I'm trying. I'm trying to stay focused. I'm trying to go this direction, but it's still bothering me. It's still hindering me. So we tend to say to God exactly what Paul says to him. Dude, take it away. Like let's stop this right now. Don't you see I'm struggling here? Don't you see that I'm in pain? Like, does it, do, do you not love me? Do you not, do you not care for me? Like, you know what I'm going through. You know how hard I'm trying. I, I know you can do miracles. I know you got it in there. Shake things up. Do something. Get, get me away from this. You can make it go away forever. But what was God's response to Paul? It says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, it says, my grace, my grace is all that you need. My power works best in weakness. <laughs> in other words, I, no, no, I'm not going to get rid of it, but I will give you grace. I will give you grace to continue to fight the good fight, to struggle against it. <laughs> God has said that to me before. You know how I responded? I don't want your grace right now. <laughs> I don't want, I don't, I, man, that, that's so generous of you. That's so kind of you, Lord. But I'm not really asking for grace. I want you to get this out. I want to get this problem out of the way. I am sick and tired of struggling. Church, here's the inconvenient truth of it all. 
Just because you have gotten free from something doesn't mean that you still don't have to fight it. Just because you have gotten free from something doesn't mean that you still do not have to fight it. I don't know how much you know about AA, but you've probably seen this much in the movies, right? The way every person starts their share time. Hi, my name is Efren and I am an alcoholic. My last drink was six months ago. It's not I used to be or I was, it's I am. I am, right? I happen to be winning the fight right now, but that's because I am still fighting. I'm still fighting. But unfortunately, some of us just get sick and tired of fighting. Or we think that we don't need to anymore. And so we, we, we let our guards down. And what happens is we find ourselves right back in the place that we swore that we'd never be at again. And the godliest of people you know, including those whose stories are written in the scripture, are not above this. One of the most famous characters in the Old Testament is a guy named David. We all know David. He was a simple shepherd who was anointed to be king at a young age. And even though he wasn't born in a royal line, didn't have that pedigree, he proved to be a mighty warrior as a young adult. And he eventually became what most considered to be the greatest king in Israel's history. He wasn't perfect and definitely had his flaws, but he was able to keep them hidden for a very long time. Church, how many of our weaknesses are overdeveloped strengths? Right? Some of our weaknesses have become overdeveloped strengths. And in some cases, they help us. But when we rely too heavily, uh, heavily on them, they hurt us. For instance, David, David was incredibly David. He was incredibly brave, right? It almost seemed like he wasn't, he wasn't afraid of anything. He had, no, he had no trouble rising up to the challenge or taking on insurmountable odds. And at times, yeah, it benefited him, absolutely. Like when a giant was threatening an army, he, he took his little slingshot and, and went out and faced him alone and, and, and won, took down the giant. Instances like this weren't the exception for David. They were the rule. Part of the prize for defeating uh, Goliath was, was supposed to be getting married to the king's daughter. The opportunity to marry the princess. But the caring king at the time, Saul, had second thoughts. So he gave David an impossible challenge to complete to earn 
for his bride, to earn his bride. And here was the challenge if you don't know the story. First Samuel 18, he, tells, uh, he says, Tell David all that I want for the price, for the bride price, is a hundred Philistine foreskins. Vengeance on my mind is all I really want. Well, that got weird fast. Mm-hmm. Come, they don't put that in the movies. But here's the thing. <laughs> Some of you are just getting it, okay? We're on tape delay. We're on tape delay. Here's the thing. David was delighted. You see, fighting was his forte. Fighting was his thing. The violence required here didn't even phase him. He's able to defeat the enemy and win his wife. If not, see, he didn't just defeat the enemy. He added another hundred to it. But his trait of this didn't always work out well for him. I think David's addiction was powering up, flexing, and taking what he wanted by force. If you read about David, all of the stories kind of match up in that way, in that format. And that's, truth is, that's not always the best or the smartest option. And it still isn't. And he came to realize that later. One time David was on the run from the King Saul, right? He was on the run from, uh, from King Saul, who was jealous of David. And he wanted, he wanted David dead. And so he was hiding in the countryside with his men. And they sort of kind of started to provide security for some of the ranchers and farmers out there. Right? Uh, just kind of just staying below the radar. And I want to keep in mind that everybody knew who David was. Everybody knew who, who he was. He was the man. He, he took down Goliath, right? And so he comes across, Scripture tells us that he comes across uh, one rancher. And he tells him, man, we've been protecting your place. We've been providing security, making sure you got to feed your stuff, all of it. Like nobody came and stole your cattle, your sheep, whatever. Can you do us a favor? Can you just, can you just feed us? Can you just provide some food with us? Right? You can find that story in First Samuel uh, chapter 25. And the guy that he, he asked, his name was Nabal, and, and he, repi- he replies by intentionally insulting David. He insults David, and David's like, what? Like, talking to me? Like, really? Like, and David was so upset. He got so upset that this guy, this, this rancher, was insulting him that, that he then threatens to kill all of them. He threatens to flex and kill all of them. So, okay, maybe a little, little overreaction from David based on somebody just talking about you, right? But here's the thing. When the bar of, of normalcy in your life, when the standard in your life is, is if you want the girl, then you're going to have to kill a 100 bad guys to marry her, 
It kind of dilutes, it kind of fogs your ability to just kind of estimate just how big any kind of reaction on your behalf to anything should be. You said I was short? What? What? I'm going to kill you. Said I didn't brush my teeth? Oh, man. I'm, that, that, your mom and your dad are going to die right now. Right? This is how David responded to things. This was, his, this was his way. This was his addiction. He tended to flex, to power up, right? Whether it was the right response or not, his was, man, I want what I want. I deserve it, and I won't give up. I won't give into it until I attain it. I'll flex it, and I'll take it by force. This was, this was David. Fortunately, someone stops him before and, and gets him to kind of like zoom out and see the bigger picture. And he begins to incorporate this way of thinking into the way he goes about things. Psalm 16, 1-4 kind of gives you an idea of him zooming out and changing the perspective and, 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 and his approach to it. It says, this is how God changed David's perspective. Verse 1, keep me safe, O God, for I have come to you for refuge. I have said to the Lord, you are my master. Every good thing I have comes from you. The godly people in the land are my true heroes. I take pleasure in them. Troubles multiply for those who chase after other gods. I will not take part in their sacrifices of blood or even speak the names of their gods. So you can see that there is kind of a change in David. So I'm going to just break this down and kind of help you understand what he's trying to say. In other words, in verse 1, Lord, keep me safe. I go to you instead of trying to do it all by myself. Verse 2, I'll submit to your will above my own, Lord. The good things in my life are a result of, of trusting you as opposed to just doing whatever I want to do. Verse 3, everyone I look up to is godly, and that's who I want to be. And in verse 4, when people elevate anything above God, including their way of doing things or the addictions that they've long relied on, it always goes sideways. I don't want to do that. I don't want to end up there. That's what, what David is trying to say here, right? That's the gist of his, uh, his prayer. You see, this meditation is, is really kind of level-headed, in regards to David and how he was thinking. He's journaling, he's meditating on these ideas as a way of helping himself remove his addiction of flexing and taking things by power. Again, if you know the steps of AA, step 11 says in the recovery process, says seek through prayer and meditation to improve your conscious contact with God, praying only for knowledge of his will for you and the power to carry that out. Prayer and meditation are code words. Right? They're code words in both scripture and AA literature for an entirely, it's code word for an entirely different way of processing life. In other words, when we pray for God's way, we move from a self-centered perspective to a, a, a soul-centered 
perspective. Let me explain this. Most of us, when we pray, right, we pray as a way of grasping for control, not giving God control. Hey, God, I need you to do this. And while you're doing this, I need to do it my way. Hey, God, don't give me what you think I need. This, I'm going to tell you what I need. Right? We're, we're, we're grasping, telling God what we want him to do. Even most Christians appear to think the point of prayer is to suck up to God so that he will give you what you want. But that's a misunderstanding of both prayer and God, church. Scripture frames prayer as a way to widen our view, to see, to be able to see God's perspective and help us understand our desires and our impulses as his will for our lives. Most people have not been taught to pray this way, and many who have don't want to invest in the time or invest the time that it takes to do it. This is why the disciples uh, asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. Because he clearly prayed a different way. He clearly prayed a differently than them. Honestly, he kind of prayed like David prayed. Contemplative prayer, church, helps us kind of slow things down, right? To kind of zoom out and gather God's thoughts and perspectives as opposed to just kind of rapidly and impulsively just acting on our own. In other words, prayer is not about changing God, but becoming willing to let God change us. You see, God wants to do something in your life. And every time we want to tell God what we want, we're basically saying no to his will and purpose because we are self-centered on us. That's our perspective. We want to be in the driver's seat of our lives. And God is asking us from day one, surrender your life to my hands. Let me be the driver. And this is what what David is recorded doing in much of his Psalms. And it had a profound effect on him, his worldview, his addictive cycle. Later scripture tells us that David is still on the run from Saul and he stumbles on a camp unnoticed. Uh, and and th- this scene begins to unfold in First Samuel tw- 26. And so he kind of stumbles uh, in the camp and everyone, including Saul, is sleeping. Nobody notices that they're there. And Saul and, his, and his, one of his leaders is right on top of, I mean, David and, and his leader is right on top of Saul. And his leader's like, let's cut his throat. God has given us him. He's right there. We can just, he's dead. Oh, David would have said, yes, let's do this. But the new David says, Let's not do that. Let's not do that. David refuses 
to kill Saul, even though he had him right there in his grip. First of all, we all have a friend that wants to do that, right? Girl, you can do it! It's right there! David says, no thanks. David's reaction demonstrates growth. It's evidence of his recovery. If David's addiction was flexing and taking what he wanted by force, he's not given into it in this part of Scripture. And the reason is he gives us, uh, he gives is consistent with the kind of thinking that occurs to you during a contemplative prayer life. When you are one-on-one with God and, and talking this out and surrendering your life and allowing God to take over. Like the ones we read about in Psalms. Something about this healthy habit of being with God regularly in a way that's allowing him to put some distance between his addictive impulses and his actions. And he was experiencing some level of freedom as a result. Can you just imagine yourself in David's shoes, something that he was always prone to giving into, killing and taking things by power. It's at his feeling, says, now nah, I'm good. And he walks away. Imagine that feeling that, that you get when you put in the work to recover, to put distance between you and your addictions. I had to feel good. He probably went going like, yeah, I did this. Go me, go me. Right? Because he was winning. He's winning. Something that was controlling over his life is no longer controlling him. He probably, he's looking to go through his soldiers. He's like, yeah, I got this. Right? It felt good to him. He was a better person. And it was benefiting the people around him. I'm, 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 and I'm sure he, he told himself, man, I'm never going back now. I'm winning. Never going back to that life. And I think he meant it. I really do. And he did. For a while. Until he didn't. Second Samuel chapter 11, just reading a little further along. What happens? It tells us the story how David sleeps with Bathsheba and he kills Uriah, a husband. <laughs> he decided to flex and give in to his addictions. You know what that's called? It's called a relapse. A relapse. David flexed again and takes what he wants by force. That's his addiction, church. And like most addicts, he didn't just slightly relapse. He went in big. He went as big as you can go. Because that's the way we think. Well, I, I screwed this one. I might as well go. If I went in one hand, I might as well put my foot through it all. I shouldn't have eaten that, that, that one corn chip. 
I shouldn't have had that one scoop of ice cream. Now I want to eat the entire container. I saw this thing on the other day, you know, you know, like I, I like Ben and Jerry's, like the American ice cream one with the, you know, with the little, 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 the chocolate, the vanilla, the caramel, and the, the ice cream cone. And I said, I saw they have a Stanley. It fits right inside the Stanley. So it keeps the ice cream cone. I thought I was a genius. Not that it has anything to do with my message, but I was talking about ice cream, right? So how did this happen? How did David go back? Why does it happen to us? Why do we go back? Because when you stop doing what you did to get free, it's unlikely that you'll stay free, church. When you think you have a grip, when you think that you're smooth sailing, and you do away with the, the, the things, the borders, the, 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 uh, the things that keep you in line when you do away with them. Ever try to go bowling with the bumper guards and you're like, man, I think I got this. I'm not hitting the bumpers. As soon as those bumper guards go down. Dun, 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 dun. That's why step 10. Step 10 says continue to take personal inventory and when you are wrong, promptly admit it. Admit it. When people have no rhythms for contemplation, they become neurotic. They become exhausted and angry and attempting to calculate and control what's too big for them to handle on their own. Instead of trusting God, instead of trusting God, they play God. Because they want to be in the driver's seat. And when that blows up, they cope. And that never works out well. What David knew but seemed to have forgotten was that we cannot, we cannot eliminate our addictions overnight. We must manage them every single day. It's the fight that keeps on coming every single day. Let me wrap this up. I want you to hear me out this morning. Recovery. Recovery isn't something that we do once and are done. It's not. A few weeks ago when we started this series, I shared about Coca-Cola. Right? That's my that's my addiction. My weight gain is not because I overeat, because I really don't. My addiction is the Coke. And some of you out there focused on my on my Coca-Cola. You didn't bring anything else up. You talked to me, you just said, hey, so Coca-Cola, that's your thing. Oh like, yeah, that's my thing. I even shared some of the steps that I've been taking to, to try to be better and get rid of my addiction. But sometimes we fall off the horse. And I know it sounds silly, right? We're talking about Coca-Cola for me. I drank a lot of Coke over the holidays, over Thanksgiving break. 
you could say I probably hit, knocked down easily three bottles in two days. And as I sat there, and I, I, I honestly, I enjoyed every single ounce of it. I really did. But as I started to process things in my life, I, I felt bad afterwards. And again, I make, we make light of it, but it is, it's an issue for me. It's a fight that I got to keep on fighting. And you can sit here and judge me because of my addiction and, and honestly, I don't know yours. But that's not what we're talking about here today. Recovery isn't something that we do once and that we're done. It's a path that we walk down and have to work consistently, ongoingly. We have to continue to surrender it to God. Continue it to put it before him and ask him, Lord, help me. Help me do away with this. Help me not to be angry. Help me not to be violent. Help me not to watch this thing online. Help me not to eat this or drink this. Help me not to smoke this. Help me not to lie. Help me not to cheat. Help me be committed to my marriage. Like I could go on and on and I could go deeper and I can make it uncomfortable for all of us here because at one point or another, I'm going to hit something that you're addicted to. But this is not about pointing the thorns in other people's lives. This is about really self-checking and saying, man, I, this is an issue in my life. I need to own up to it in order to live the life that God has purposed for me. Live an abundant life, a good life, a full life. I need to address this. And recognize that it requires going to require me to surrender it unto the Lord, and it's going to be the cross that I pick up on a daily basis. It's the process of receiving and utilizing the grace necessary to manage the splinter that you wish you can pull, but you can't. That's why the writer of Hebrews 12, a passage that we've revisited many times and even this series, says in Hebrews 12, so take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. 
Doesn't it sound like this author is writing on behalf of God? And he's saying to you, there's a chance, there's a chance that you'll relapse. And if you do, get back up and aim yourself in God's direction. Allow God to do what only he can do. What will prevent you from falling back into that thing is regularly strengthening yourself with the rhythms that helped you get free. Because those those are the tools that if you use them will help you stay free. Listen, it, it, it may be something that you cannot wish away. That you cannot blink away. But it can be something that you can work with God to keep at bay. To keep it at a distance. So here's what I want you to do as we wrap this up. Write out which practices helped you get free. Experience that freedom begin to do them again begin to do them again and do them again and again and again and wake up every day and say Lord I want to live this life that you have purposed for me and it's going to require work on my behalf so I'm going to work I'm going to keep up those bumper guards I'm going to keep those boundaries. I'm going to keep on doing what I need to do to experience and live in that freedom. Amen.